Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. Privacy is a pretty hot topic these days as people for maybe the first time are starting to realize the true extent and magnitude of the data that companies are gathering on them. And not everyone is okay with it. My guest today is Richard Stokes, founder of Winston Privacy. And in this discussion, we talk about the genesis of Winston and how he's trying to help consumers address their privacy concerns in the simplest way possible. We also get into a super interesting conversation around how he built a hardware business in the first place, the landmines that you can run into, and how he went about de-risking the business early on. And coming on the heels of one of the most successful Kickstarter campaigns of all time, he also dives into a whole bunch of tactics and strategies for how to make the most out of a crowdfunding campaign. Full disclosure, many of you know me as a partner at Digital Intent, but the owners of DI are also partners in a sister company called Founder Equity, an early stage venture fund here in Chicago, and Winston is one of our investments. But I think you'll find Richard to be super interesting, wicked smart, and very pragmatic uh, in his discussion of how he went about building Winston. I think you'll get a lot of value out of it. So with that, let's go to Rich. Okay, Rich, thanks so much for being here. Why why don't we start with, uh, I guess, what Winston is and where... Uh, where the idea came from, the genesis of it. Yeah, so Winston is the world's first plug-and-play privacy device for the entire home. Uh, It's designed to uh, just let you plug it in, and 60 seconds later, it heightens your privacy protection for all your devices, uh, including, you know, your your kids' phones and their tablets, your smart TVs, your ring doorbells, Mm -hmm. um, everything. And you don't need a computer science degree to to be able to use it yeah um so it's privacy plus awesome internet in 60 seconds and i guess what what was it that prompted i know you kind of came your background actually was in uh kind of on on the ad tech side how did uh how did you come to a place where you thought winston was something that you needed to do and that needed to kind of exist in the world yeah you know i spent 14 years in ad tech you know i saw this rise of these increasingly disturbing technologies and um we were projecting how these technologies were going to evolve, what future scenarios look like. And I didn't like it. It was a episode of Black Mirror coming to life. It was just not the world I wanted my kids to grow up in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so fortunately, uh, uh, as a result of, you know, my past success, I was in a position where I could leave the ad tech industry and, um, you know, put my skills and experience into uh, use and try to put a stop to this, you know, um, horrible model of consumer uh, surveillance capitalism, mm-hmm. you know, so make the world a better place. Yeah. A, a lot of folks, obviously, it's, it's super topical these days, and a lot of folks are, I think, are, are at least somewhat familiar with the fact that companies track them, and they, you know, they often talk about how they, you know, they had a conversation with their friends, and then mentioned some esoteric thing, and it appears in their feed, you know, 24 hours later. Um, I think that they're a little, they're at least somewhat familiar, but they might not necessarily be totally aware of kind of the extent of it. Yeah. Maybe what are, what are some of the things that folks might not necessarily be aware of as it relates to kind of how companies are tracking their online activity? Like what is the extent of the problem? Oh gosh. Well, the problem's omnipresent. I mean, everywhere you go now, you're being tracked uh, by multiple entities. If you haven't seen the great hack on Netflix yet, I think it came out about a week ago. Uh, oh, I haven't. Terrific, no. terrific documentary about two hours long. They, they talk uh, and illustrate, you know, how all this data is being collected and it's being weaponized against us. Mm-hmm. Um, but some, some specific examples, you know, every time you go online, whether that's on a phone, on a tablet, on a computer, 
there's a whole surveillance web that has risen up to track you. They collect this data, they piece it together through different parties. It's all reassembled. Um, and you know, they essentially put together this 360 um, degree insight surveillance into your life. You know, it's more than just reassembling your browsing activity in every site that you went to. They can actually model you know, our personalities, our moods. Um, they try to target us at the times that we're most vulnerable. You know, so the different ways that this is put together, there's just so many. Your ISP, really well known for tracking you. Um, again, this is a worldwide business model. Yeah. Um, it's, it's so prominent, in fact, that Maine has just passed a law um, making this ISP tracking illegal. That's how, that's how wow. present it is in our lives. Antivirus software, security software. You know, I used to purchase data from the antivirus companies. Um, what people don't realize when you install the software on your computer, what you're doing is you're allowing them to crawl uh, and scan the pages that you are browsing. And so we used to purchase Amazon shopping cart um, data yeah. from the antivirus companies, you know, for individual users and that would go in their, you know, the sort of their permanent record. Yeah. Um, some people use VPNs, you know, mm -hmm. VPNs are well known. Um, they're a security solution. They're being improperly marketed as a privacy solution. Uh, they actually don't do anything to disguise who you are. All they do is change the endpoint of your data, which is uh, useful if you're at a Starbucks or a, um, you know, a wireless a network at the airport or a hotel. Mm -hmm. It is a really useful security measure, um, but it doesn't give you any privacy at all. And a lot of these VPNs are taking your data and selling it to the ad tech industry. There's a, <laughs> there's, a, there's yeah, there's a network that's running out of the Middle East of uh, global VPNs, and they market themselves as privacy solutions, and they're either really cheap or free, and they just collect all that data and sell it back to the ad tech industry. Wow. Another dirty little secret about them is, you know, 30% of all VPN companies are owned by six Chinese companies, and you better believe they're collecting your data. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's the, you know that's just really scratching the, the surface of it. Wow. And um, there's so and, many different methods. And now you know the 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 smart home devices, I would imagine, are magnifying that even more, and are sort of augmenting it in new ways, even when you don't necessarily, even if even when you're not necessarily browsing. You know, you're not actively searching uh, or visiting sites or doing any of that kind of stuff. Now, there's able to they're able to track other kinds of things as well. How big of an issue is the is, is the smart home side of things? So, in-home surveillance is the cutting edge. You know, Google and Amazon are flooding the market with cheap devices to try to own the home because yeah. they want to know when you're home, who's home, what they're doing at home. Right? Uh, there are patents that have been filed by uh, Amazon to recognize toilet flushing, for instance. They want to know everything that you're doing at all, all hours of the day um, so that they can use and monetize you. So uh, it's an incredibly pervasive problem and it's only getting worse. In five years, you know, the smart home, um, I mean, it will be unrecognizable. And for consumers or for, you know, maybe folks that are in the industry that would argue that uh, so what it's may all, all we're doing with this is serving you more relevant content or, you know, tailoring advertising, you know, we're, we're an ad based business. And so we're going to be showing you ads no matter what. And this is at least making those ads relevant. What's the, what's kind of the rebuttal to those kinds of arguments or that line of questioning? You know, I think that may have been sort of plausible 
two or three years ago. Yeah. Uh, but the cat's out of the bag. Um, again, that document in the great hack shows how this data was used to swing. Like Cambridge um, Analytica and all that kind of stuff. Cambridge Analytica yeah. uses to swing, I think it was 25 different elections around the world. Jeez. You know, um, they're, they're actually uh, saying the rise of Trump and Brexit were actually a result of this data being weaponized and used against the public. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's, there's countless other examples from, from other countries around the world where it was being used against us. Yeah. You know, that's, that's at a political level. Yeah. Uh, it's also being used, us, used against us in just everyday forms like pricing. You know, if you're de-anonymized when they can track you, your hotel and your uh, airfare mm-hmm. uh, quotes will go up. You'll, yeah. pay, you'll actually pay more. I think there was a study that showed you pay about an extra $40 per night for hotel rooms if the travel companies know who you are while you're looking. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and then there's insurance uh, implications as well. There's a whole category of technologies that's being um, developed right now called behavioral underwriting. That's the idea of following you around the web. Yep tracking how your mouse moves, you know, um, and they're using, they're mining mouse movements and how you type for health signals and personality traits, right? So there was one that was uh, talked about a couple of weeks ago where um, I believe it's Google with their reCAPTCHA data. Mm -hmm. Um, They're trying to uh, predict Alzheimer's Mm -hmm. in individuals with this data, just, Mm -hmm. just by how they interact with their computers. Wow. You mentioned VPNs, uh, and a lot of you know many folks use that, and they think that that's a privacy solution. Also, there's ad blocking technology. How would you describe? You've already kind of gone into how it's different than a VPN, but what, what about some of the other kind of solutions that are out there? Like, why are they kind of insufficient to kind of mitigate this problem for consumers? Yeah, you know, so there's a lot of people who recognize that this is a problem, and they're taking steps to to do something about it. Typically, by you know, quilting together this patchwork of technologies, Mm -hmm. right? And I did this for years myself, uh, even when I was in the ad industry. And a lot of people in the ad industry also use ad blockers, which is another dirty little secret Mm -hmm. uh, that you don't want to hear about too much. But (laughs) VPNs, uh, VPNs are sort of step one because it encrypts Mm -hmm. um, your connection. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's a starting point. It's a good starting point. You know, step two, uh, what you'll hear is like, if you go to the privacy subreddits, you're going to hear people give you advice on, okay, well, you need to install an ad blocker, then a cookie blocker, then you need an anti-fingerprinting plugin. Um, those are the, the three typical ones. Mm-hmm. And so the problem with that is what people don't realize is when you install multiple browser extensions, you're actually reducing your protection. And there's a, there's a technical reason for that. Uh, there's something called the Web Request API, which is implemented by Firefox and Chrome and pretty much you know any modern browser. Yeah. Um, if you get in there, read the docs, or if you have actually worked with this hands-on, um, what you find is that only one browser extension can modify a request. So if you have three extensions all competing to scrub your your uh, data uh-huh. as it's going through your browser, they're competing with each other and they're making each other less effective. Wow. Right. Yeah. And so there's there's many implications like this. People don't realize that the solutions that they're putting in place. Um, are often ineffective or, you know, counter, running counter to what they're trying to do. So what we're trying to do with Winston to make that different is put all this together in one tightly integrated package that actually works. It's not a patchwork of things that sort of work together. You're not really sure if they're effective or not. Um, It's not some half-assed solution. It's like a Sonos-level experience, but with... um, almost military grade privacy. So what are some of the high points in terms of just 
to kind of you know digging under the hood in terms of how how it protects you in a way that some of these other solutions don't like without getting too in the weeds i mean what 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 would you say like maybe the three or four high points are that that kind of make winston unique and how it's able to kind of do that in a way that that others can't well the very foundation of winston is the network right mm-hmm. and so we look Looked at VPNs early on, and we realized that there were a couple of big problems with them. The, the the big one are, you know, performance and being dropped, being blocked by streaming services, right? So the the user experience isn't really great with mm-hmm. VPNs. The bigger issue from a privacy standpoint is that you're always subject to logging. Whenever your data crosses the U.S. border or whenever it goes through cloud infrastructure, whether or not the VPN company is logging you, and many of them are, but there are some that are not. Uh, the infrastructure provider itself is logging that data, mm-hmm. right? And there's no way around that because it's, it's happening, you know, on these cloud services. Yeah. So we were looking for a better way. And one of the things that we did was we built a distributed network, which uh, runs basically on the consumer's own ISP mm-hmm. fabric, mm-hmm. never goes through any sort of centralized infrastructure. It's a same kind of concept that uh, Telegram or Signal uses, you know, yeah. peer-to-peer distributed a solution. Yeah. So we wanted to cut ourselves out of it so we can never collect, see, or monetize that data. Yeah. You know, so if the government came to us and said, hey, what is, what has Sean been up to? And they gave us a gag order and subpoena, we couldn't tell them, right? Because <laughs> yeah. we can't see what's happening um, on your internet connection. Right. So that that's kind of the foundation of what we do. And, uh, um, we're using a lot of clever machine learning techniques at the network level and the application layer. So I'll give another example of that. A lot of people are familiar with cookies and cookie blocking. Mm -hmm. So every modern browser gives you the option to disable third-party cookies. And I think Safari might even turn it off by default, and Firefox is probably going that way in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, What people aren't talking about are that third-party cookies are no longer the primary means of tracking individuals. Um, The ad tech companies have caught on to this. And what they're doing is they're embedding these uh, tracking codes within first party cookies, hmm. right? So if you go to, let's say, the Chicago Tribune and you open up your browser console window and you look at the cookies, you're gonna see a lot of third party cookies. But what's really interesting is you click in the Chicago Tribune cookies themselves, you're gonna see a lot of cookies hidden in there from Facebook and other companies um, that are working with the Chicago Tribune and putting their own tracking codes in there. Now you can't block these, right? Because it, yeah. It requires you to either go through one by one, which nobody's ever going to do, right? Or you have to try to block first-party cookies, which breaks most of the web. Yeah. And so what we've done, we recognized that problem early on. Again, this was because of my experience in the the ad tech industry, and I knew that this was happening. Yeah. Um, what we created was a machine learning classifier that can find these cookies and analyzes each one of them as they go in and out of the browser and scrubs them, yeah. even if they're in first-party. Uh, if, they're, if they're hidden and disguised as first-party cookies, we still block them. So that's an example. Um, you know, there's another big category which I won't get too in the weeds on, but it's a uh, you know anti-fingerprinting. Okay. So browser fingerprinting is a technique where you can identify devices, um, even individual monitors that people are using, uh, by probing the browser and their computer, and it requires no tracking cookies. It requires nothing to be stored on the user's computer. Mm-hmm. And it works to track you even in incognito mode. What it looks at are characteristics of your hardware. So oh. things like your CPU, number of cores, your screen resolution, and so on. Got this it. is how they um, track people through Tor, right? Oh, I see. Got they it. You can fingerprint them. And so, 
you know, this, this is pervasive. It's 80% of the Quadcast top 500 websites are using fingerprinting technologies to identify users, even when they're blocking cookies or in incognito mode and so on. Got it. So it's it's just a widely used tracking technique. So all these things have to be taken together. Um, you really have to stay on top of the, the cutting edge of this stuff, yeah. uh, you know, to block it because yeah. there's, there's constantly people who are trying to um, get in your personal data and monetize you. I'd love to just get into a little bit about how you have built the business itself, just because, you know, our audience, a lot of them are trying to execute on their own sort of ideas inside of organizations and things like that. I'd just be, um, I think they'd be kind of fascinated around some of it. So first of all, I mean, your background was in ad tech and it wasn't in hardware necessarily. So how did you go about getting up to speed on the hardware side? And and maybe are there any, you know, pitfalls that you kind of either... <laughs> accidentally stepped into or that you managed to avoid that folks that are trying to create maybe a hardware type of solution for another domain that they should be aware of or, or, or talk a little bit about the hardware side of, of the house. Well, so actually, I, I sort of literally grew up in a hardware. Um, you know, my dad got a TRS-80 uh, back in the late 70s. Mm -hmm. I was on computers for as long as I knew how to read. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so I spent my teenage years at Radio Shack. I was constantly building circuits. Um, and, you know, I went and got electrical and computer engineering degree from U of I. So I was actually pretty comfortable with hardware um, itself, hardware design, not necessarily the production and scaling of a hardware business, which is um, definitely a, a new and complicated <laughs> subject. So, um, boy, there's a, there's a lot to learn there. Um, I give a lot of credit to um, having uh, access to M-Hub mm -hmm. here in Chicago. You know, yeah. M-Hub is a hardware accelerator uh, a lot of really, you know, smart, experienced hardware, uh, uh, hardware folks are here. Yeah. And so I was able to lean on a lot of them for advice and avoid um, just many different errors we could have made. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that we did early on uh, was we hooked up with Minimal. Uh, it's a local uh, industrial design agency here in Chicago. And they've done things like uh, Xbox One, for instance. Yeah. Just a, a whole lot of cutting edge awesome looking products. Yeah. So that really helped. Um, one of the big risks that a hardware entrepreneur faces is being late to market, you know, so you try to raise enough money, uh, cause you're going to need money in hardware because it's expensive. Yeah. So you try to raise enough money to last 18 months. Mm -hmm. Now the, what you don't really know or what you don't really hear about too much is the inevitable delays in getting to market. So, um, sort of the word of mouth, um, advice I've gotten is, you know, most hardware companies are about 12 months late hmm. in getting to market. And that's mm -hmm. just because of varying, you know, sources of friction in the supply chain and design and so on. There's just so many different things that you can get wrong. Yeah. I mean, give, give an idea. Uh, we had like a, we had a shave 0.1 millimeters off of like the edges of our case uh -huh. at one point, because, because about, you know, 10% of our like end caps were buckling. And it, it, you can you could see the bubbling and the buckling yeah. like in the product. Yeah. And so that set us back a couple of weeks. And those yeah. things are pretty common. Yeah. So the way that we were able to mitigate that was, you know, um, we worked with minimal, mm -hmm. which was, you know, expensive admittedly, but they had a lot of experience doing this and we were able to, to avoid most of those common DFM errors that come out when you're um, actually trying to take the product from sort of a concept or a prototype and you know fit it to this to the assembly line yeah right so yeah. that was a really big source uh of an advantage for us i think in total give you an idea um we started industrial design in march of mm -hmm. 2018 mm -hmm. 
And our first units, first like units that we could actually sell came off the, uh, came out of the factory in January. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so that's pretty record time. Yeah. A lot of folks talk about these ideas around when they're, when they're coming up with new, with new products, at least as it relates to software is kind of rapid, you know, rapid prototyping and fast iterations and, and things like that. Obviously that's harder, uh, with hardware. Are there any, are there any strategies that, that either that, that you learned from MHUB or Minimal or just things that you kind of picked up that allowed you to accelerate um, the rate of learning while you were kind of figuring out form factor and all of that kind of stuff? Any, anything that you learned there? You know, form factor is really tough. Um, one of the things you have to go through is it's almost like having a logo designed. Yeah. You have to get about a dozen different uh, concepts put in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, to sort of figure out where you're going to go with this thing. Um, if you just try to, you know, start off and kind of hack it yourself and put it in a box, you're just going to end up going nowhere. You know, and I, and I started going down that road um, in the very, very beginning, spent like probably a couple of months, mm-hmm. you know, trying to figure out what this thing was going to look like. And that's when I realized, okay, I, I need to have experts come in and do this who specialize in this. Yeah. You know, I'm the, the inventor, the engineer, um, the entrepreneur, yeah. uh, I'm not the designer. So, uh, you know, for me delegating the design out, um, was probably one of the most valuable things I did at that, at that stage. I, one of the things I remember when we, when we were looking at, at investing was that was really compelling for us was the sort of systematic way that you went about validating demand for the product. And, you know, you ran some smoke tests and you did some of those sorts of things. And, and it's something that we, you know, often advise, Companies do, but very few of them kind of do it. I think it'd be interesting for folks just to hear kind of what was what was your, I guess your thought process in terms of validating demand for the product, and and what were some of the things that you did or the experiments that you kind of ran along the way to de-risk this thing. Yeah, uh, so we spent a huge amount of time pressure testing the concept and refining it. We didn't start off as Winston, you know. We started off as I hate to say it, but it, it was like. A, uh, called ad catcher. It was like meant to be a whole home ad blocker, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, because we just, we weren't sure at the time, did people really care about privacy? And we got, it, it was interesting because whoever we talked to, it was very polarizing. Some people said, I love the privacy stuff. I hate the ad blocking stuff. And the other people said, I love ad blocking. And I hate the privacy stuff. I don't, I don't care about it. Yeah. And so just, you know, having these informal conversations um, didn't turn up any answers. And so that's when we turned to the quant research. You know, we started looking at uh, value prop and market sizing and product configuration studies. We did all that. And in the course of maybe 45 to 60 days, what we realized was hands down, you know, the concept had to be privacy mm-hmm. and it absolutely had to be hardware. Mm-hmm. You know, if it was a so either software-based or if it was, you know, more focused on ad blocking, we were just going to run into a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. And that quantitative research, I, I mean, the ROI in that, at that stage, even though that took, you know, 45 to 60 days to put together, yeah, I, I can't even quantify. I mean, 1,000, 10,000 percent. I don't think we would have, I don't think we would have been successful on Kickstarter had we not done that early research. You just, you mentioned Kickstarter, obviously, um, you, you kind of just wrapped that up and I know you've got kind of the Indiegogo one going now too. And at the end of that, I think I ran for a month at the end of that, you'd raised over, you know, 500 K, um, one of the more successful Kickstarter campaigns ever. 
I'd, I'd love to kind of maybe get into some of the strategies that made that effective. I guess at, the, at a high level, what was the rationale behind doing Kickstarter in the first place? Because as, as a company that had already done your raise, you already had um, validate some of this stuff. Like what, what was the goal, I guess, coming out of the gates with doing the Kickstarter? Yeah. So we really reverse things quite a bit. You know, a lot of companies go on Kickstarter with a concept and they, they try to fund it yep. and go to the next stage. Yep. And in hardware, I mean, that's pretty much a, a key mistake. Mm-hmm. You know, hardware is uh, almost all hardware companies who start off on Kickstarter and they don't have um, a good handle on their supply chain and their bomb and everything else about it. Um, they run into issues which cause either you know huge delays and anger their early adopters or early backers, mm-hmm. um, or they don't ship at all, right? Because they end up selling a product that they can't afford to make. Yeah, you know. So we knew about this. We talked to the people at TechStars, um, and they confirmed it. And we said, well, you know what? We're going to go through the whole process. We're very confident in our research. We know that the market wants this. We're not going to fund the concept through Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. We're going to reverse it. We're going to build the product. We're going to have it ready to ship. And then we are going to go on Kickstarter just to prove demand and demonstrate to the world that we have market fit. Yeah. And so that was a big thing for us. You know, I think most hardware companies put the cart before the horse. Yeah. And I think you really have to be pretty late in the game before you do Kickstarter. Yeah. Now, in terms of why we did it, it was great for exposure. Yeah. Um, you know, it's this discipline of a like a 40 day campaign mm-hmm. forces you to basically, you know, shoot all your bolts in the same direction at the same time. Yeah. And once you succeed in busting through the noise, the market uh, takes notice and it really feeds on itself and it helps your success. Yeah. So, you know, because we had this 40 day campaign, um, you know, it was really kind of slow at first and then it just picked up about 10 days in. Yeah. And as we got to about halfway to two thirds of the campaign, the media noticed, you know, we, we got mentioned by fast company, word, high consumption, yeah. Yanko designs, all kinds of uh, uh, outlets covered us. Yeah. Uh, and that really helped, you know, so it generated a lot of buzz and it really set us up for, um, you know, the, the next phase of the company. Yeah. A ton of, a ton of folks, you know, will ask us and, you know, in my, in my, the, the class I teach at Kellogg, you know, every semester there's someone that's trying to do it and, and, and most of them don't, don't succeed. You know, I was, I was very impressed with the level of coordination that kind of went into the campaign and there was kind of a cohesive logic and it was like, we're going to do this on this day and do this on this day. What were, I guess, what were some of the high level things that you thought made the campaign particularly effective um, if you were to kind of deconstruct it or if someone were planning to do their own kind of Kickstarter campaign, are there lessons or strategies or tactics that you learned that were particularly effective that you think could be abstracted that are not just specific to kind of the Winston story specifically, but be maybe a little bit more broadly applicable. Absolutely. Yeah, there are absolutely so many things. So, um, one of the first things you got to decide is how long your campaign is going to run. Yeah. You know, too short or too long. They're both big mistakes. You want to have a campaign that's going to run about 30 to 40 days. Mm-hmm. Um, probably the biggest mistake, you know, that you see with, with many of these failed campaigns is they set a longer, uh, campaign, a lifetime. So mm-hmm. if you go beyond 40 days, People lose the urgency, you lose the buzz, and it really hurts your conversion. Yeah. Right. So you don't want to go longer than forty days. I would probably not go less than thirty. Mm-hmm. Um, another early tactical move you have to make is setting your funding goal properly. Mm-hmm. So I just recently saw a campaign. Um, it was for a privacy laptop or an unhackable laptop. Okay. Okay. Never mind the fact that that 
can't exist, but um, <laughs> they, they set their campaign goal at $900,000. Wow. Way too high. Yeah. So the rules on Kickstarter are you don't get funded until you hit your campaign goal. Yeah. So they, they set it high. Yeah. Okay, fine. They didn't get funded. But what people don't realize is as you're going through the campaign, one of the data points you see on Kickstarter as you're, you're skimming through these campaigns is the percent funded. Yep. And so you want that number to be as high as possible because, you know, if you see a campaign that's 50% funded, yeah. you may or may not click through. If you see a campaign that's 2,000% funded, yeah. it, it makes you curious. You click through and your conversion rates and your traffic go way up. So you want to set your, your funding goal at a pretty reasonable level. Yeah. And this is where we got a little bit of a disagreement with Kickstarter. They wanted us to set it at 50,000 and we set it at 20,000. Huh. Uh, I think ultimately, you know, they they were going to give us a uh, projects we love designation, and they didn't because of that. Mm -hmm. It's my guess. Yeah. But I, it, it didn't really matter. I mean, we ended up blowing away our campaign goal, so we did really well. And I think a big part of that was because we set our funding goal appropriately. Yeah. That's interesting um, that they would that they would because uh, I mean, obviously they 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 don't get to capture those revenues if they <laughs> if you don't hit the goal. That's interesting that they would have suggested that. Yeah, yeah, they're you know they're they're not really transparent um, with the process, so it, you know I don't think we're ever going to have an answer on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'll tell you another a big one. This was probably a big mistake for us. Probably cost us fifty thousand hmm. dollars. And so hopefully anybody listening to this is going to save fifty thousand dollars in the next yeah. or uh, sort of campaign, make fifty thousand more. Okay. Um, one of the pieces of advice you get is to put a $1 or a $5, just some like really cheap donation pledge mm -hmm. as one of your rewards. Mm -hmm. um, do not do that. Absolutely do not do that. So we, we did this um, donate, you know, a dollar or something. Let me see. It was pledge $5 or more. And what, what we didn't realize when we put that up is uh, um, the rewards go from top to the bottom of the page. Um, from least expensive to most expensive. Yeah. And so that $5 pledge occupied prime real estate. And guess how much money we made from that? <laughs> we, made, we made $10. That's amazing. We made $10 and we lost, you know, about 25% of the most valuable real estate on the page. Wow. Here's what we didn't know. As soon as somebody backs a reward, you can no longer remove it. Oh, and so we didn't have the option of taking it down later. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. don't ever, I mean, don't ever do that. Don't ever put that one or $5 or $10 donation reward in there. If you've got a high priced item, mm -hmm. maybe it makes sense for something that costs 10 or $20. Mm -hmm. It does not make any sense for something that is, you know, 200 or $300. Right. Right. Um, so that, that was a big problem for us. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one more. And I think this is absolutely critical. Maybe the, maybe the most important thing. And that's the campaign video. Yeah. So not having a campaign video or having a poorly produced campaign video are key mistakes. In fact, having having a poorly produced campaign video is actually worse than not having one. So you want to have a great campaign video. You know, we did one with a guy sitting in a bathtub with a duck. It was funny. Mm -hmm. um, it got a lot of attention. People absolutely loved it. Yeah. Uh, professionally produced. Uh, and written by Lemon Light, they did a phenomenal job. Mm -hmm. It's fairly affordable. I mean, if you're if you're in hardware, you're going to have to spend money yeah. for marketing. You know, ten to fifteen thousand dollars gets you a really good campaign video. Yeah, don't do it yourself. Yeah, and don't 
don't give it to somebody who hasn't done Kickstarter uh, videos before. Right? Are there, yeah. Are there other uh, elements that you picked out or that you've kind of picked up relative to, to um, other types of videos that you might produce for, you know, like YouTube pre-roll ads or any of that kind of stuff? Are there, are there any um, kind of nuances to creating a Kickstarter specific piece of content like that that you picked up? Yeah, yeah, there's quite a few actually. I mean, you want to you want to lean into being funny mm-hmm. um, if you can because it's more engaging. You know, these serious campaign videos are being boring and um, you know sort of factual. They yeah. don't get a lot of engagement, so yeah. they're they're not hugely successful. Yeah, you know, ninety seconds is about the ideal length for this. Mm-hmm. Um, you you want to focus on that. It's the the campaign video itself is completely different than something you'd run on social media. Yeah. So social media ads are. That first five to ten seconds, you got to get somebody in. Yeah. And you don't really have the context. You may not even have audio, right? Mm-hmm. And so, this ends up really impacting the video that you show. Yeah. Um, with Kickstarter and Indiegogo, people want to see the video. They want to be drawn in. So mm-hmm. it's a really different uh, format and platform. So you have to focus on that uh, for those platforms. Yeah. You, you know, just get a good company who knows what they're doing with that. Makes sense. Were there any nuances that you've kind of picked up between, uh, you know, Kickstarter versus Indiegogo in terms of platforms? I know you use both. How do, how do you think about kind of the interplay between those and what's one used for versus the other one? Yeah, so it's actually um, more of a nuanced thing than you might imagine. Um, it, so on the surface, it's a really simple decision. If you can do Kickstarter, then you do Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. If you can't do Kickstarter, then you go to Indiegogo. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the reason you might not be able to do Kickstarter is if your product's not viable yet, it's not in the prototype phase, doesn't actually exist. If it's a concept only, Kickstarter will not let you put it on there. Right. Mm -hmm. Kickstarter, though, it's about three times the traffic and the conversion rates are generally quite a bit higher than Indiegogo. Um, And the fees are a little bit lower. So Kickstarter is um, your preferred starting point. Now, after your campaign's over, you might think, and I get this question a lot from investors, well, why don't you just go and sell it on your site now? Mm-hmm. And again, this is the non-obvious reason. Um, you can't sell on your site right after Kickstarter because people who buy on your site will expect to get the product in a few days. Yeah. Right? Yeah. All those people who back to you on Kickstarter are waiting months yeah. for their product. So you can't just you know turn around and do that because they're going to get real, real angry at you real fast. Mm-hmm. And so what you have to do is you have to soft land. Um, and Indiegogo is perfect for that. So you can, right after Kickstarter, you know, Indiegogo has a program where they'll transition you. They'll set up your campaign uh, landing page on Indiegogo. Mm-hmm. They'll transition you over to Indiegogo. Yeah. Um, you can continue running on there and pre-selling. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a really natural um, transition. You go from, Indi- uh, from Kickstarter to Indiegogo. You know, and then, you know, you figure out sometime in the future, you're just going to completely go cold turkey from both those platforms, right. preferably if you deliver most of your units. Yeah. And then you switch over to direct, yeah. you know, and that's a whole different ballgame. Is there anything that you've been doing to maintain the momentum? I know once you switched over, you know, you mentioned kind of the benefits of the sprint um, and that 40 days and how that was how that was helpful for you. But you've managed to even after you switch over to Indiegogo, I mean, you've raised another whatever a quarter million or so. So it seems like you've managed to kind of maintain that momentum. Is there anything that you've been doing to make that happen that you would attribute it to or any lessons there? Or has it just been, you know, kind of a good tailwind from the Kickstarter campaign or are there strategies that you've been leveraging to kind of keep the momentum high? 
Yeah, I would say about 50% of that has been, you know, tailwind from the Kickstarter campaign. Yeah. The other 50% is, again, we're, you know, we're working to get review units out. Yeah. We work with authors. You know, we just uh, we did an interview with uh, Digital Trends mm-hmm. last week, you know, which ended up on Flipboard. And that generated about, you know, $25,000 of sales and yeah. few hours, right? Yeah. So yeah. you just have to keep hitting it. You don't have to hit quite the same pace as you do mm-hmm. during the Kickstarter phase, yeah. um, which is good because it's really hard for your entire team to be focused on uh, Kickstarter for 40 days, much less, you know, six months. You, you just can't keep up that pace. Right. You know, so right. um, you just have to keep it up. It's a little bit slower at this phase. You know, yeah. we're in the process now. We've proven market fit. Yeah. So the company is really in a, in a transition phase where, we achieved all the goals that we set out for ourselves with those first rounds. Yeah. And now, you know, we're setting the vision for the next few years of the company, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, it's a, it's a different pace. It's sort of different objectives and different tactics yeah. altogether. Yeah. As you kind of start to kind of make that transition and as units start to ship and things like that, you know, one of the benefits of software is again, you've got kind of the ease with which you can iterate and make improvements and do those sorts of things um, just on the basis of kind of the quantitative data and, you know, through things like doing concierge MVPs where you kind of follow and stay as close as you can to the customer and things like that. Those are some, you know, some, some tactics that are pretty well established. How do you think about that from a hardware perspective as these units get shipped out? How do you, um, how do you stay close to the customer? How do you continue to kind of iterate and improve on the software in response to their feedback? You know, especially with what you're doing and, you know, anything that smacks of, hey, we noticed, you know, we noticed blank, like that would indicate any sort of data would, would probably be not great. So how do, you, um, how do you think about kind of staying close to the customer now that you're transitioning into this next phase? Yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, it, it's one of those things that I was talking about, we have to really shift gears mm-hmm. because, you know, we, you start shipping more units, right? Yeah. And ideally what happens is as you ship units, um, you resolve issues and then the percentage of, you know, support requests that you get with each batch goes down so you have to ship more units, yeah. and keep up the pace. So, you know, every release that we do, let's, we're on more or less a monthly cadence. Mm-hmm. Um, we get new learning. So I'll, I'll give you a great example. Uh, we shipped out a unit. Um, and one of the users said, Hey, you know, I can't connect to Skype for business. Mm-hmm. Haven't you guys tested this? And he's really kind of frustrated. And it turns out, no, we, we, we did not test your personal corporate Skype server. Yeah. <laughs> we couldn't yeah. do that, yeah. but we worked with them. You know, it's, it, it's exactly like, like this concierge MVP. Yeah. So we got on it, you know, just focused a lot of attention on him for the next couple of days. Yeah. And he was so impressed, you know, he was thinking about returning the unit, but we got it resolved. We figured out how to make things better for all the other users going forward. And he's actually really happy with it. And he's really happy with us now. So, yeah. you know, you're going to face challenges with new technology. There's just no ways around. Anybody says they're not going to come across like really tough problems mm-hmm. you know, or like unsatisfied users. Yeah. Uh, they either don't know or they're lying. Right. Yeah. You are. Yeah. So the whole the whole key is pay a lot of attention to them. Try to resolve their issues. Um, a lot of times you can turn. Um, those users into your biggest champions yeah. just because they feel they feel heard and listened to. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So as you're kind of transitioning into this next phase, what are you what are you most excited about um, in terms of the next 12 months and where, where things are going? Wow. Um, so the big thing that we're working on right now is community. So 
one of the things that we learned from Kickstarter was that about 10% of our users are super engaged mm-hmm. in this. Like they're, they're privacy geeks. Yeah. You know, they want to, uh, they want to contribute in some way. And so the feedback that we got was, man, could you open this up? Can we play with it? Can we share like fixes or recipes or mods with other users? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we started thinking about how we could do that. We looked at things like the piehole forums, you know, where yeah. people were trading hacks with each other over bolts and boards, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I was like, well, there's gotta be a better way to do this. And so that gave rise to this community concept. And what we're putting together right now is um, more or less like a app store for compatibility. So let's say, you know, um, I'm making this up, but let's just say you're having trouble connecting with Fortnite, okay? Yeah. And so what we're exposing in this next version is like a search engine on the device itself. Mm-hmm. You type in Fortnite, mm-hmm. you get a button that says, hey, uh, would you like to install this? And then it reconfigures your Winston so that, that Fortnite works perfectly, right? Very cool. And so we want to expand that to let our users, the people who are really engaged with this, create new modules and publish them mm-hmm. on this compatibility store and share with other people. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the really exciting things um, uh, that's going on right now. Later in the year, we're going to have a mobile Winston. Mm-hmm. So the ability for your phone yeah. or your tablet or PC to connect, let's just say you're driving around town or you're on a trip, yeah. you can encrypt all your connection um, through your home net, through your home network mm-hmm. via your Winston. Um, and you get all the benefits of a VPN with as well as all of your, you know, your personalized privacy settings that you've set up at home. So uh, that's another really exciting thing that's coming down. Uh, probably by December or January, we should have that. I know you, dan- you, I remember you dangled that as a carrot even during the Kickstarter campaign of once you'd hit your goal, now you were kind of, you kind of were pushing out these stretch goals kind of over the last 20 or so days. And, you know, yeah. if we get here, was that, was that an effective kind of mechanism to kind of push folks over the edge or get them maybe even to up their, their initial contribution and things like that? Yeah, it, you know, it sure seems like it. Um, the feedback that we got, you know, for that one perk, the mobile perk, yeah. perk was huge. Um, it seemed like people were telling their friends they started buying two and three packs, mm-hmm. you know, and we went from one point where we're like, well, we're probably not going to cross the half million dollar mark on Kickstarter. Right. We're like in the low 400s. Right. And then we put that out there and we said, hey, look, if we cross half million, we're going to do the, we're going to commit to the mobile yeah. Winston concept. Yeah. And then we just blew through the number. Yeah. It was great. That's awesome. So yeah, that was, that was really effective. Very, very cool. So for folks that maybe want to learn more, how can folks find out more about Winston and, and maybe, maybe grab one? Yeah, so you go to winstonprivacy.com. That's our website. You can learn all about it. Yeah. If you actually want to buy one, we're sold out till roughly January, um, but you can uh, sign up for one, get on the waiting list on Indiegogo right now, um, and there's also a discount for that as well. So uh, you can get the units cheaper than they're going to be after the Indiegogo campaign is over. Very cool. Well, Rich, it's been great having you. It's been fun to watch uh, this whole process unfold. and. Just super impressed with your level of execution kind of every step of the way. So uh, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it and look forward to, you know, seeing where things go. Thanks, Sean. It's great talking with you. My guest today was Richard Stokes. For more ideas on how to disrupt your own organization, visit us at www.digintent.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd love a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.